Well, I wanted to um, just begin this morning by just doing a little uh, plug here. Um, when uh, we had the prayer uh, service on New Year's Eve, one of the things that, Gail- that uh, Caleb uh, talked about is one of his prayers uh, for this year was that more of us would get into small groups, whether they're D groups or uh, women's gatherings on Saturdays or men's uh, man cave on Saturdays or grace groups. Uh, it's good to gather here on Sunday mornings, but, you know, we're here for an hour, maybe an hour and a half, and that's not, isn't going to develop the fellowship that God wants to have with one another. So I just encourage you, if you're not in a group, uh, that you'd find one. They're all listed in the uh, the weekly email. If you have a question, you can come see me or Caleb. Uh, we'd love to have everybody uh, in a group to deepen the fellowship that we have one another, to deepen the care that uh, that Christ would have us give one another to. So I just encourage you to do that. I'd also like to um, uh, let everybody know that uh, today, or actually this year, is the uh, 75th, 75th anniversary of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. What's a Dead Sea Scroll, you may ask? Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered... Uh, near Qumran uh, by a shepherd boy, uh, and it became a uh, multi-year project finding all these scrolls that were hidden in these caves. Uh, and what's, good, what's really good about that for us is that they demonstrate that the Old Testament that we have today is the Old Testament that was written. Um, so that's a good thing. So I just wanted to bring that up. And then another... Uh, important date that I'd like to mention is, uh, you know, we've, we've, we're resuming again the, uh, the series Kiss the Sun on uh, preaching through the Psalms. And uh, we started last uh, July. And I thought I'd do a little bit of math. And I, and I calculated that uh, based on our current progress that we would get to Psalm 150 uh, on July, July 19th, 2026. <laughs> uh, I will be 71 years old the day after that. So, uh, Caleb, just to let you know, don't schedule me to preach that day because I'm planning on having a big blowout party for my 71st birthday. All right. Um, let's get into this. Psalm 14. I'd like to read a uh, short story here, a true story, about something that's going on in India. This comes from Open Door USA. Uh, The story was posted on December 23rd. In certain regions of India, hostility towards the gospel continues to intensify. All of of 2021, there's been increasing demonstrations and violence as Hindu extremists demand a halt to anyone converting away from their religion, especially to Christianity. The new emphasis focuses on carrying out forced reconversions of believers. Hindu leaders call it garwaspi, and it means to return home. In a special worship ritual, families are forced to recite prayers to Hindu gods and turn away from Jesus. They also declare that they made a mistake by becoming Christian. One Indian ethnic group claims that claims to have reconverted five families. Media inside the country report that 231 Christians returned to Hinduism in 2021. And then I'd like to read some quotes here from uh, people who might call themselves agnostics or atheists. One such person who I won't name 
uh, happened to be a governor of a certain state. He said, our behavior has stopped the spread of the virus. God did not stop the spread of the virus. <clears throat> Some of you may remember Madeleine O'Hare, who in the middle of the last century was uh, quite a firebrand uh, against Christianity. She summed up what she believed about Christianity by saying this, Christianity is intolerant, anti-democratic, anti-sexual, and anti-life. It is anti-woman, and I cannot stand that. It is anti-everything that is good and human and decent and kind and love-filled and understanding. I used to have an intellectual hatred for Christianity. I think that's broadening now, she says. She says, I'm enjoying hating the whole thing. And then H.G. Wells, in one of his books, through one of the characters in his book, says this, If I thought there was an omnipotent God who looked down on battles and deaths and all the waste and horror of this war, able to prevent these things, doing them to amuse himself, I would spit in his empty face. Let's read Psalm 14, 1 through 7. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat at my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Let's pray. Father God, there's uh, a whole lot of people in the world who not only don't know you, who are also hostile to you, and therefore hostile to those who follow you. And this psalm speaks of those people. May we have our hearts open to what you have to say to us this morning. May we have understanding as to how you see the world and people in it and how you regard us who follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 14.1 declares that it is the fool who says there is no God. In the first line of the psalm, it's not the fool that decides there is no God. It's the person who decides there is no God who becomes the fool. And this is a willful decision. In much of Western culture today, the heart is the seat of emotions and feelings. Not so in Hebrew. The Hebrew word translated heart is the center of of the person's will, intention, inclination, consideration, and reason. When the psalmist says the fool has said in, in her heart there is no God, she has made a willful decision that there is no God. But the fool here is not an atheist, at least not a true atheist. And I call this person the practical atheist. That is not to say that there aren't any true atheists in the world. Many claim to be such, although I think that the cliche, there are no atheists in foxholes, has some truth to it. I could tell you I have some personal experience that, where I can say that there are no atheists in earthquakes. Uh, I've been in a few of those. In the Hebrew, the phrase, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, actually reads like this. The fool says in his heart, no God. No God, or no God. It's not so much a denial that God exists, but a denial that God has any part in the fool's life. So the fool is the practical atheist. 
There are some characteristics we can draw from this psalm about the practical atheist. First one is that the practical atheist believes that God does not care what he or she does. This used to be called deism. Deism is the uh, notion that God created the universe, created the earth, and then he just stepped back and said, okay, you guys have at it, have a good time, and had nothing else to do with it. <clears throat> this is illustrated, this idea is illustrated by a fellow named Lamech. Genesis 4, 23 through 24, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Lamech wasn't crying a prayer of remorse or repentance. He was boasting. That's what the practical atheist does about his sin. The practical atheist, secondly, rejects God's authority over his or her life and often, often substitutes it with an authority more to their liking. Judges 2, 11 through 13, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtars. The practical atheist rejects God and looks for some other authority in their life. In the ancient Near East, it was almost always some other God. Today, very often, it's just themselves. I'm the authority in my own life. Thirdly, God knows, the practical atheist knows God but rejects him. Romans one twenty one. for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. For although they knew God, they did not honor him. That's what the practical atheist does. Fourthly, the practical atheist believes God will not judge sin. Psalm 59, 6 and 7, Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths and with swords in their lips. For who, they think, will hear us? They don't think God will do anything. He won't judge. The character atheist... Fifthly, rejects God even while being judged. Revelation 16, 21. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Note here that the people didn't say, God, please stop. We repent. We choose to believe you now. They didn't do that. They got angry at God because it was so severe. And sixth, the practical atheist descends ever deeper into his or her rejection of God and ever deeper in their embrace of sin. Romans one twenty eight through 32 And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, Haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Now you hear passages like that and what we've been talking about here. You might look around and say, wait a minute, I know people. They aren't believers, but they're basically good. I know 
they'll experience God's judgment if they don't accept Christ, and I pray that they will accept Christ, but they're basically good people. Using Paul's terms from the Romans 1 passage, a good person may not murder, but they may lie. Or a good person may be deceitful, but may not invent new ways of evil. Yet many good people wholly embrace, or at least do not regard as sin, for example, sexual conduct outside of marriage. Love is love, right? Other good people embrace abortion. It's just tissue, they say. These and many other things are symptoms or indications that such people are what Psalm 14.1 calls fools. Not so much because of what they do, but because they have rejected God. And once God is rejected, it becomes easy to accept sin in others and in your own life. Rejection of God leads, leads to an embrace of sin. Now, my neighbors are good. Nancy and I live in a cul-de-sac. There's about six, six of us neighbors together, and they're nice people. We've met all of them. We've talked with them. We've had dinner. We, uh, we usually get together as a neighborhood and have barbecued together during the summer. They're good people. They're nice people. As far as I know, they haven't murdered anybody. But I know that all their goodness is not going to gain anything before God. Before Christ, I was good. I know you have a hard time believing that. But, uh, but I was a good person. Uh, I grew up as a teenager and a young adult. Uh, I didn't do drugs. I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I didn't chew and go with girls who did. I didn't join gangs. That was a popular saying at my, at my Bible college, by the way. <clears throat> um, but I was a good person. Okay, so I lied a, a lot. Uh, you've heard the phrase that uh, he swears like a drunken sailor. Well, I swore like two drunken sailors combined. And uh, it wasn't hard for me to steal. But I was a good person. The fool or the practical atheist does not have to be wholly bad to be a fool. The measure of the fool or, of the practi- or the practical atheist is their rejection of God, which is the measure of Psalm 14.1. And uh, I read some quotes there, Larry, and I was researching, looking for quotes and examples like that. It was not long before I came across the most vile, evil, hurtful words people that said about God, about Jesus, about Christianity, about Christians, and they were all said by good people. A couple of weeks ago, I read an article... It was reported that a teacher teaching children at Christian Middle School in Austin, Texas, at a school board meeting, read a Dr. Seuss-style poem she created. The poem mocked Christian parents for opposing, get this, sexually explicit books in the school given to their preteens and young teenagers. I'm sure she's a nice person. By the way, the theological term for this is, is called total depravity. Total depravity does not equal utter depravity, which means that humans are as wicked as they can be and are all equally bad and can do no good. Total depravity means rather that humans can do good things but can be, and can be good people but have a fallen sin nature, they cannot, nature that they cannot change without Christ. The message of passages like Romans 1 and Psalm 14 is that such people will, will reject God more and more. They will sin more and more and accept sin in themselves and others more and more. The practical atheist does not fear God. At best, the practical atheist ignores God. At worst, he or she openly despises God. 
So that about covers the first line of the first verse in Psalm 14. Hopefully we'll be able to go a little quicker the rest of the way. What does the practical atheist do? We've talked about his, his character, but what does he do? What he does flows directly from his character. Look at Psalm 14, 1 through 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Practical atheist is corrupt. That word appears in both verses 1 and 3. The word translated corrupt in verse 1 and 3 are different Hebrew words. In in verse 1, the word describes what the fool does. That is, he does abominable deeds. In verse 3, the word describes the condition of the fool. In verse 1, they act corruptly. In verse 3, they are corrupt. Secondly, the practical atheist does not seek God. God looks, he searches, but no one seeks him. There are none who understand. The idea behind that phrase is that there are none who are wise. The person who is wise would seek God, but none do. Three, the practical atheist does no good at all. Again, we see that in verses 1 and 3. There is none who does good. Despite what we said earlier about good people and people who reject God but do good things, and despite our own experience with such people, Psalm 14 says that there is not a single person who does good. They may do good things, what we consider good things, but the good things they do are worthless. Psalms, or, uh, Isaiah 64.6, We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Fourth, to badly paraphrase the April 1971 comic strip Pogo, he said, we have met the practical atheist, and he is us. This is the verdict of scripture. We may point to a person, hey, there goes a practical atheist, or there goes a fool. But the scripture makes it clear that the practical atheist Uh, is everybody, including us, before we met Christ. The moniker practical atheist or the fool is applied universally. To put it bluntly, we we were all practical atheists. We were fools without Christ. Isaiah 53, 6, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But, thank God, the Lord has laid upon him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Number five, the practical atheist consumes God's people. In verse four, the psalmist asks this rhetorical question. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my peoples as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? The answer to the question, of course, is no. The practical atheists do not have knowledge of God. They've rejected God. And having no knowledge of him, why would they call on him? But not knowing God and not calling him leads the practical atheist to do something else. The phrase eat up is a Hebrew idiom for everything from slander to destruction. It speaks of intentionally damaging people, in this case, God's people, believers. C.S. Lewis said this is a kind of a cannibalism where, quote, eating up people is a picture of ruining them for personal gain. The practical atheist damages people as easily as he or she eats bread. Speaking of those who economically ruin people, Micah 3.3 says that who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot like flesh in a cauldron. 
That's what those folks in India are doing and in many other places around the world. And I expect many of us have experienced this to one degree or another. I've experienced this. As I said, as I was growing up um, as a teenager and young adult, uh, I won't go into details, but my mom was an alcoholic and my stepfather was abusive. And uh, his abuse varied <coughs> uh, in intensity from time to time. Before I became Christ, it was kind of normal abuse, if you could call such a thing normal. Uh, after I became a Christian, uh, one day I was convicted that I needed to ask him for forgiveness for some things I had said to him. Uh, and so I did. I asked his forgiveness. His response to me was vile. And he attacked me and Christianity and Jesus and uh, it wasn't very fun. But I expect most of us had, have had experiences where non-believers have, quote, eat us up. Now, if you've been reading with us in Psalm 14 and verses 1 through 3 here, you might say to yourself, well, that sounds familiar. You'd be correct. <clears throat> Paul quotes from verses 1 through 3 in Romans 3 in his charge that all have sinned and are condemned. Romans 3, 9 through 12. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For you have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, that is, Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul agrees with the psalmist, the practical atheist, having rejected God, unable to change his or her sin nature, can only do what the practical atheist can do, that is sin, and continue to reject God and to eat up God's people. There's a uh, true story uh, about a fellow named jo Joseph Addison, or I should say from Joseph Addison, who was a 19th century author, hymn, hymn writer, and for a time Undersecretary under of State of England, about an atheist he encountered. Addison had been on shipboard with a particularly vile person when the ship was overtaken by a gale. The passenger was the only one severely frightened, this atheist. But he was so frightened that he went to the chapel and fell on his knees and confessed that he had been a denier of God and an atheist ever since he had come of age. It soon got around the, the ship that there was an atheist on the upper deck. And the common sailors who... Um, who I'm sorry. And the common sailors who said Addison who, said Addison, had never heard of the word atheist before. At first, supposed, supposed that it was a rare kind of fish. But when they learned that this is a man who denies God, they were frightened themselves and suggested, not quietly, that it would be a good deed to heave him overboard. <laughs> However, the ship soon came, named, came near land. When the penitent man saw that they were not going to perish after all, he reputed his conversion, begging the passengers not to say a word of what happened to anyone and went back to his openly wicked ways. <clears throat> after two days on shore, this man ran into one of the other passengers again, and the passenger reminded him, reminded him of his newfound, newfound piety. The atheist denied it, and the argument got so fierce that it ended in a duel in which the atheist was run through with his opponent's sword. Addison said that at this point, he became as good a Christian as he was at sea. <clears throat> until he found that his wound was not mortal. At which point, he relapsed again. The last Addison heard of him, he had become what in those days was called a free thinker. 
and was writing foolish books about religion. Well, it's been pretty depressing up to this point. Not very uplifting, but the psalmist has more to say. Verses 5 and 6. There they are in great terror, speaking of the practical atheists, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Two things come out of this, these verses. First, the psalmist seems to look into the future, or perhaps he has seen something in the practical atheist that only comes out from time to time. The practical atheist is terrified. The Hebrew reads, they are afraid with fear, emphasizing the depth and the deep extent of their fear. The fear comes from the realization by the fool that God is with the righteous, that is, those who follow God. Imagine the terror for the fool who is whole for his whole life has been hostile to God and hostile to God's people, ignoring any suggestion that God cares or will judge sin, realizing finally that God does care and that he is with his people. The second point is similar to the first, saying the same thing in a little different way, but adding something else to it. The psalmist, now seemingly speaking to the fool directly, sees what the fool does not see. They may try and may even seem to succeed in shaming the poor, that is to humiliate God's people. But Yahweh is the refuge of those who follow him. The practical atheist has no refuge, adding to his terror. The word refuge has its roots in people seeking seeking cover in a storm, but also comes from the experiences of soldiers who sought protection from the enemy in the high hill, places in the hills, particularly in rock, where they could hide and have a safe, defensible place to protect them. The word became used to, to be used in reference to God as a place of refuge or shelter. It's variously translated as life, rock, shelter, safety, stronghold. That last is my favorite translation of it. Joel 3.16 says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. And that's not just an Old Testament idea. Hebrews 6.17-19 through 19, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we also have fled for refuge. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor to the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus is gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's in this sense of stronghold that the psalmist speaks. The fool may have some success in shaming the plans of the poor, or of mocking believers, of hurting those who follow Christ, but even in that, God is with his people, and he is their refuge, the stronghold of his people. Psalm 14.7 Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Most psalms are prayers. And in a general sense, so is Psalm 14. But Psalm 14 is not strictly a prayer. In other words, it's not a a psalm that is making requests of God. Rather, it's a frank assessment of the fool. And a frank assessment of God, that God is the protection of his people. Verse 7 
The psalm is a declaration that God will deliver his people from the practical atheists and will restore his people. The psalmist looks to the day that salvation, that is deliverance, would come from Zion, Jerusalem, where God dwells. The psalmist is calling for God to deliver his people. The psalmist has no doubt that deliverance will come. And the word translated restore is also a, a Hebrew idiom. It emphasizes the certainty of what God will do. And in Hebrew it reads, when the Lord turns with a turning toward his people. God will turn toward his people. And when he does, there will be worship and praise. And while we understand that David was thinking about Israel when he, said, when he wrote this, what he says is a principle, it's a promise that all of God's people can look forward to. Revelation 22, 1 through 5. <clears throat> then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. As an aside here, uh, you know, sometimes we <clears throat> we have an image of heaven, and the image is us all sitting on a cloud somewhere with a harp in our hands, strumming the harp for eternity. That doesn't sound like very much fun. <clears throat> but we will worship God. We will be in community with God. He will be the source of everything we need. <clears throat> there will even be the tree of life, which we'll be able to eat. And more than that, we'll be, we will reign with God. It's not just sitting around strumming a harp. It's going to be a good, good thing to be in heaven with him. And that is what we have to look forward to. This promise is those for, for those who believe. Now, you might ask if, that if the practical atheist is bound to reject God, how can anyone believe? It's because of Jesus Christ. And it's not just Christ's work of dying or resurrecting, although that was critical. It's the work of Christ to draw us to himself. And cause us to see our sin, repent of it, and believe that he did die for our sins and that he did rise from the dead. And that by believing in Christ we become the children of God that he will never reject. I remember my, the day of my salvation. Things were particularly um, bad that day. And they had been for a while. <clears throat> and uh, for some reason, a memory came to my mind. And that memory was of a Sunday school class when I went to when I was in fifth grade. Well, I went through the day. Those thoughts were kind of roaming around my head and came time to, to go to bed. And I was pretty terrified about life and about things. And, and I actually thought that, uh, what, I thought, what would, what would it like to be dead? Because for a moment, at least, I thought that would be better than living in the situation I was living in. And so I tried to figure out what it was like to be dead. <laughs> you know, I turned out the lights, turned off any sound that I any sound that I could, and I pulled my the pillow over my head and tried to imagine what it was like to be dead. And after a few minutes of that I decided that wasn't very fun either. And uh, and then the memory of Sunday school came back. And I remember the gospel from that fifth grade Sunday school class. I don't remember who said it. I could I could tell you it was a, it was a lady, and I could tell you that that she was kind of a nice person, and I could tell you that she 
put uh, those figures on the flannel board illustrating a story. I don't even remember what the story was, but I remember the gospel. And that night I asked God to come into my life, and he did. Christ drew me. And uh, it was because he drew me that I was able to accept him. So I'd like you to think about some things here in regards to all this. The practical atheist confidence is short-lived. Those quotes I read earlier, uh, that, as I said, I, I, I wrote do- read, read dozens of those things, and they were awful. And it doesn't take much to look around the world and see how the world uh, hates Christianity and hates Jesus Christ. And it seems to be getting worse. But the practical atheist confidence is short-lived. The fool, which all of us who believe now in Christ, who believe in Christ now, were once, is confident in his or her assertion that God does not care about what he or she does. So he or she can do whatever she wants, or what he wants. But his or her confidence is short-lived, even though it may seem never-ending. Second thing I'd like you to just remember is that politics and programs will not solve the underlying problem. Programs can be good. Problems, programs can do good things. Programs can help people get through trouble and help people survive. And politics can, can also add to that. But it's not going to solve the problem. The problem is that people reject God. So the reliance on politics and programs is, is uh, well, you shouldn't rely on it. Number three, there's hope for the practical atheist. You were once a practical atheist. You were once the fool of Psalm 14. So was I. There was hope for you. And if there was hope for you, there is hope for the practical atheist now. And that hope comes from Christ. Pray for the practical atheist. And when God gives you opportunity, tell the practical atheist about what Jesus has done for you. And in the midst of sin of the practical atheist, in the midst of the pain of the the practical atheist causes for believers... In the midst of what happens to uh, what appears to be the dominance of the practical atheist, God is with you. God is your stronghold. I have that in caps here. God is with you. God is your stronghold. He is your place of safety. Number five, pray for boldness to speak to the practical atheist. Shortly after Pentecost, Peter and John were arrested for preaching the gospel. Once released, they went back to their fellow believers rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for Christ. They praised God, and then they prayed this. Acts 14, or Acts 4, 29-31. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They didn't pray. Look at their threats, Lord. Keep us from harm. Grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders were performed through your, the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place and when they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Pray that God will give you boldness to speak. Number six, former practical atheists will be glad. For those of us former fools who have since believed the gospel, who have believed Jesus Christ, we are already delivered. And we will be fully and finally delivered. God will restore and deliver, and when he does, we will be like the psalmist of Psalm 126, 1 through 3. When the Lord restored the fortunes to Zion, we were like those who dream. 
Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. We will be glad, us former fools. And then finally, wait eagerly. Psalm 8, 19, I'm sorry, Romans 8, 19 through 25. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions of sons, as we wait eagerly the redemption of our own bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, see, we wait with patience. Let's pray. Father, thank you for saving us. Thank you for ignoring that we were fools. Ignoring that we we're practical atheists, and Jesus Christ drew us to himself, and we heard the gospel, and we responded in belief. Thank you, Lord, for doing that. Thank you for causing that to happen in our lives. And we pray, Lord, that while we live in a world of practical atheists, and while we live in this world of practical atheists, Father, who may uh, call us names and may try to hurt us, who uh, reject God and say awful things, about God and about Jesus and about us, even in the midst of that, Lord, help us to remember that you're with us and that you are our stronghold and that we can still share the gospel with these practical atheists in the hope and in the prayer, Father, that they will become like us, believers in Jesus Christ. Give us that boldness. In Jesus' name, amen.